Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning. Are you well? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. We're enjoying very nice, uh, unseasonably sunny... I just say unseasonably because it is summer. Yeah. It should be raining, <laughs> but unseasonably sunny weather. Yeah, I've noticed, here. yeah. Uh, and, um, and, you know, obviously we've had a few political ructions here on this, this side of the earth. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so we're I'm not really sure where all that's going. So it's been an interesting week yeah, in it's journalism, been a really. Incredible week. Yeah. Also a very tragic week in London, quite sadly. Mm, I know. Very, very sad. Okay, let's start with TB. TB, we all know here in South Africa, is a horrible challenge for us, right up there with HIV and often forms of comorbidity. So I was fascinated, Chris, to see that our science story for the week involves understanding how this bacterium overwhelms our immune defenses. Yeah, well, what motivated me to talk about this is that a, a very interesting piece of research from South Africa was, was published fairly recently in a journal called eLife, looking at this very problem. And TB is a massive scourge. The World Health Organization estimate that up to one person in three could be previously infected and therefore carriers of TB. And we think that about two million people a year die of TB, and there are at least 10 million new infections that we know about every year. The bug is also becoming increasingly resistant to antibiotics so understanding mm. more about how it causes disease is really important. Mm. And what Alex Sigal who is a researcher at the Africa Health Research Institute has published in the journal eLife recently is a painstaking and he says the first example of a time-lapse microscopy study of how TB actually overwhelms our immune response. No one's ever done it quite like this before, as far as he can tell. What they did is to incubate a kind of cell called a macrophage, which are giant eating cells that clean up mess and bugs and engulf stuff you don't want in your body. They're also the target for TB infection. They incubated those cells in a dish with TB bacteria, which had been genetically altered to make them glow red so they were easy to spot under the microscope. They took pictures every 10 minutes and they watched how these bugs I interacted with our immune system, these macrophages. Mm. And it turns out that under normal circumstances, macrophages can eat and safely sequester TB bacteria and stop them being nasty. Hmm. But if they eat too many TB bacteria, in fact, the number they found, the magic number is about 50, then the bacteria do something, they're not clear yet what, that leads to that cell dying... And you might think, well, when it dies, the bacteria that are harboured inside it will just die with it, but they don't. And the cell, in fact, implodes, produces all this muck and debris, which the bacteria then use to grow even more, but they then also use the dead cell as bait, because then more macrophages come in to clean up this mess they can see, and, of course, there's now a big stew pot of TB waiting to infect them. 
and it would appear that this is how the disease amplifies and then suddenly gets out of control and then begins to spread to other people and spread to other parts of your body. So it's a new, it's not the whole story, but it's a new piece in the puzzle of understanding how TB causes disease and perhaps giving us new insights into how to control it better. I'm amazed, Chris. You know why? I'd always thought, given just how ubiquitous the TB scourge is in my country here, that we understood much more. That's partly why I was fascinated. I didn't realize that despite the fact that there are attempts to treat it better, especially the bits, the versions that are very drug resistant, that despite that, there's still very important parts of understanding how it operates really hard studies to do though you see this because uh, th this bug is tiny and when you see these down a microscope the, mm. the tiny thread-like appearance of the bacterium really belies how dangerous it is and and it is increasing in number it's really a, a sort of an its ally is hiv because hiv damages the immune system and this makes it easier for bugs like tb to take a hold and um, poverty doesn't help because what happens in poverty is that people tend to buy the drugs they can afford rather than the complete course of treatment that they need and as a result they might partially treat the infection and this then leads to a rising tide of resistance and that's what we're seeing and that's the thing people are really worried about because there are now strains of TB around mm. all over the world, not just in, in African countries, which we can't treat. Yes. Patrick and Manoni, good morning. What is your question for the Naked Scientist? Um, Chris, I'd like to know, if protein, it's so commonly known that protein is crucial to, to the, the building of muscle, how come an animal like a horse that consumes no protein has some of the most powerful muscle ever? Hello, Patrick. Right, well, the answer to this is, what is, first of all, what is protein? Well, protein is one of nature's polymers. A polymer is a giant molecule built up from lots of smaller molecules called monomers. And if you look at a protein, it's built of building blocks called amino acids. Now, we can make some amino acids in our own body, and we do that by rearranging various atoms and stealing bits off other molecules to make the amino acids we need. But there are some amino acids that we, as humans, absolutely can't make, and we need to get those amino acids from our diet. Other animals and other creatures do have the metabolic pathways that mean they can make those amino acids, and once you've made those building blocks, you can string them together to make whatever proteins you want. So we have evolved to have a diet that will supply the amino acids that we can't make, so we have no evolutionary need to make them because we eat stuff to get them. Other animals that can't uh, rely on that instead have the metabolic machinery required. So that's how a horse okay. gets away with it. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Okay. Lovely question to start us off with there. Um, and let's take one from the SMS line. We've got some really interesting SMS questions. You can SMS your questions for Chris as well, by the way, 31702 or 31567. Grace wants to know, Chris, when dogs wag their tails, is it a voluntary or involuntary action? Well, people have actually looked at this in some detail now uh, because one of the things that people used to do is chop the tails off dogs. And uh, we now realise that this is a horrible thing to do because dogs use their tails in the same way as we use our smiles. We have a smile and a frown and we use facial expression to convey what mood we're in. 
dogs strongly use their tails in order to signal intent, mood, delight, happiness to both us and to other dogs. And in fact, there was a guy who did a whole study filming dogs in different situations and looking at their tail wag. And he even came up with a wagometer so you could analyse <laughs> the mood of a dog by looking at how its tail wags. And he had different moods which were, which were in keeping with different tail wagging behaviours. So excitability, mm. pleasure, curiosity and so on. So dogs definitely rely on their tails. This is something that they do in the same way as you would frown or you would smile in order to, to express your emotion, the dog wags its tail. So it certainly has a, a voluntary component to it because you can train a dog to wag its tail on command in the mm. same way as you can train a dog to bark on command. Um, but equally, in the same way that if I did something that made you very happy, you'd probably look happy. There's an involuntary sort of superimposed effect on that. I suspect it's probably the same with the dog tail mm. wag. As we go, Santa and Peter, good morning. Happy Youth Day to you. What is your question? Thank you very much and thank you. Chris, the question is, switching off your geezer and switching it on at certain times, does that save uh, electricity and hence save you on your electricity bill? Uh, like maybe you switch off uh, your geezer yeah. two hours a day, yeah, and then you switch it on and, and yeah. Does that save electricity and does that uh, save on your electricity bill? Thank you, Peter. Yep, thanks, Peter. Right, what what is the purpose of supplying electricity to the to the water tank, the geyser? Well, that's to heat the water up. When the water is at a high temperature, the heat is trying to get out of the water harder to escape into the cooler environment than if the water's at the same temperature as the environment when the energy is flowing in out of the environment into the water and into the water out of the environment is on in, in equal amounts. So when you push energy into the water with the electricity, you're making it easier for the water to cool down or it wants to cool down more. So if you make water hot and keep it hot all day for no reason and you don't have a very well insulated tank, you're going to lose a lot of the heat that you're supplying into the environment and that's going to mean you're wasting energy. Uh, it's not going to cost you any more energy to put the energy from the electricity into the water to heat it up in the first place, really. So the best thing to do, actually, is to turn it off when you don't need it. That will save you money, but you just have to make sure that you turn it on enough time in advance to get your water to the right temperature, obviously, and then mm. don't end up using more hot water because you haven't heated it up enough than you otherwise would because you wish you'd had a bit more hot water and it was hotter and it could do its job better. Uh, that could be wasteful too. So you need to work out how long it takes to get the tank to useful temperature, put mm. a timer on it, t warm the water up for as long as you need to the right temperature. Don't overheat the water. 55 degrees C is probably a good compromise for domestic water. Use the amount that you want. Don't, don't heat more water than you need. So invest in a tank that's the right size for your needs. And definitely, definitely insulate the tank because the thing that's costing you electricity is the heat escaping from the tank because you have to put back in with the electricity any water that leaves any heat that leaves and you can cut that down by insulation great question thank you so much peter suzette i'm going to come straight to you jen paul uh, gene cosmos and rafik and your questions as well on the other side of this break it is the naked scientist 702 and cape talk the naked scientist 22 minutes after 10, I can tell you what, Peter's question, a lot of people on Twitter were loving it. Clearly, secretly, they had a similar question in mind. This is what I love about this segment. Suzette in Cape Town, good morning. 
Hello. I wanted to ask the naked scientist how it is that we speak in different accents. I'm really talking about English. I don't know about other languages. But like in the counties in England, they have a different accent from each other. And here, too, we have a different accent from the people in the south of Joburg and things like that. Okay, very good question. Thank you so much. Fascinating yeah, one. Hello. It, it, it is an excellent question. And the answer is because we all copy each other, because we're a social species. And in order to get on well and to make ourselves clear to each other and our intentions clear, then we tend to emulate each other. That's partly why we're empathic. We look after each other and in the same way as we strive to be like each other because then we get on. Now, in the past, when people were much more isolated as communities than they are today, we didn't have cars, we didn't have aeroplanes, boats, buses, trains and planes, everything. People were much less mobile and therefore communities tended to stick together more. They were more isolated and therefore these sorts of speaking traits tended to become more concentrated in populations, which is why if you have countries where there's a lot of diversity, a lot of people, but they're quite isolated, like older days England, then you got one county sounding one way, another county sounding a different way. And then when you extrapolate that around the world, you get a bunch of people who come to South Africa, you get a bunch of people who go to Australia, a bunch of people who go to America. They end up with certain spoken behaviours tending to exaggerate in the population and everyone copies it in order to sound like each other. And some people say the same thing happened in Spain because one of the kings of Spain had a lisp and everyone in the population strove to speak like the king to avoid offending the king, which is why certain words in Spanish now sound like the person has an element of, of lispiness in the way that they, they say some words. So that's probably the most likely reason that, A, we, we are social species that copies each other, and in the past, geographical isolation and a lack of, of telecommunications meant that there wasn't world influence with everyone striving to sound the same the world over. So localness uh, sort of surmounted all, and people exaggerated certain traits uh, in, on those small-scale geographies. And nowadays, because we are much more of a global community, with programmes like this one, for example, where we've got a whole mixture of accents all kind of being shared amongst us, words and ways of speaking are spreading and smearing out more across populations. So um, certain American words are becoming, because of the, the mass American media, are becoming much more common in other countries and vice versa. And actually it was quite funny because um, someone wrote to me from America the other day and they said that they'd been listening to the Naked Scientist podcast because we podcast everything we've, we've ever made and we, we were one of the first podcasts ever to exist in the world. Mm. been going for about 15 years. And this guy in America said he downloaded every program we'd ever made because wow. he liked the programs <laughs> and listened to them. Several programs a day for, you know, because there's about a thousand hours of programs uh, that are available now. And he wrote to me and said, I, I think, I, I, think I, I knew when I'd overdone it because I began to dream with an English accent. <laughs> we thought, yes, <laughs> we've succeeded. That's brilliant. <laughs> Rafik in Forestan, good morning. Hi, good morning. Hi, Chris. I just wanted to find out in the greater evolutionary scheme of things, where do viruses fit in? I mean, why did they evolve or why did they arise? Of what benefit are they? Are they just bits of RNA and DNA that just broke off from bacteria and floated about? Did you get that, Chris? Okay, this is a very... Yeah, yes, I did. So this is a very 
interesting question. Where do viruses actually originate? Where do they come from and how do they fit into life's rich evolutionary tapestry? First of all, what's a virus? Well, viruses are very simple forms of life. Some argue that they may not even be considered alive because a virus is the ultimate parasite. It has a piece of genetic information wrapped up in a coat and it can only copy itself by invading another cell and hijacking the machinery in that cell to make a copy of itself which then spits out thousands of copies of itself that then go and do the same thing all over the place. And as it does so, it can change its genetic information a bit by a process called mutation, and therefore the virus adapts and changes a bit. But at the end of the day, without one of our cells or an animal cell or a plant cell or a bacterial cell, even bacteria can catch colds, then there is no way for a virus to grow. So people there, therefore say, well, well, where did these things come from in the first place? Because if they needed a cell to grow in, did they come along after cells had evolved or was something else going on? And there's a range of different theories about this. One theory is that viruses actually predate complicated life on Earth because life got started as a bunch of chemical reactions that slowly got more and more complicated and eventually wrapped themselves up in a cell. And some people speculate that perhaps viruses were a spin-off of that early process and that they've just been around ever since things got going and that they've, they've actually stayed alongside life. Other people argue that as life became more complicated, some bits of the life machinery uh, escaped and became a life form in their own right, a virus. Other people speculate that um, there's a mixture of the two going on, and part of the evidence for that is that there are some giant viruses which have been found. They're called gyruses uh, in the last 10, 20 years, including some which are double the size of a bacterium. So, you know, they really buck the trend, but mm. the genes in those giant bacteria, in, in those giant viruses, are so diverse and different and also span all of the different... Uh, of the kingdoms of life that people have argued that they must lie very very early in life's evolutionary history but because viruses and biochemistry doesn't fossilize very well actually we don't know and so at the moment we're we're actually groping in the dark somewhat and there's a lot of theories not a lot of facts we've mm. got a minute left i'm going to squeeze in one more question i'll take this one from our sms line and alex would like to know from you chris why do our why do our noses run when we have a cold Right. The reason this happens is that when you have a cold, and colds are caused by viruses, uh, viruses, as we've just explored, need to hijack cells in order to grow. So when you are exposed to a virus, and there's a whole raft, there are hundreds of viruses capable of causing colds in humans, a virus has got into at least one of the cells in your nose, it has grown in that cell and spat out thousands more viruses, which have then invaded more cells in your nose, and invaded those cells and made even more viruses. And so eventually the mucous membrane, the lining of your nose and throat, becomes stuffed full of viruses which are damaging cells and releasing inflammatory signals which then causes inflammation. And inflammation is where blood vessels open up and the dilatation of blood vessels causes swelling and that makes your nose feel stuffy. They also become leaky, these blood vessels, so cells and antibodies can escape and deal with the virus, but the escape of fluid therefore makes, again, more swelling, but it also encourages the glands to secrete more mucus. The purpose of secreting more mucus is that you then soak up any virus particles and you stop them spreading to other cells that haven't been infected in your nose. Instead, what you do is you sneeze them out and give them to somebody else. <laughs> Chris, we'll do it again next week. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.